All right, welcome back, Roundtable listeners. We have an exciting episode in store for you today. Uh, John, what article do you have up first? So first, we'll talk about a paper published JAMA Cardiology, November 12th, 2023, called Decline in Estimated GFR After Dapagliflozin in Heart Failure with Mildly Reduced or Preserved Ejection Fraction, a Pre-Specified Secondary Analysis of the Deliver RCT. All right, and what was the research question? They wanted to know what is the association of initial changes in estimated GFR with cardiovascular and kidney outcomes among patients with heart failure. Yeah, I, I like that because we know with SGLT2 inhibitors, of course, there will be a, a little bit of a dip in their GFR, aka a rise in their creatinine. And the obvious question is, geez, do we stop the drug? Should we continue the drug? Anyway, why was this important? Yeah, that really is the fundamental question. Like, what do you do? And are you setting your patient up for success or failure by continuing the medication? It's thought that, you know, by the mechanism of the SGLT2 inhibitors, that perhaps it's a change in intraglomerular pressure that can cause that decline in GFR. You know, in DAPA-HF, they actually found that a GFR decline of more than 10% was associated with lower risk of cardiovascular outcomes compared with the placebo that had a similar GFR decline. But the concern is always, well, what if someone stops the drug almost inappropriately because they think they should because of that worsening renal function temporarily um, because then you're preventing the patient from getting like all of the good cardiovascular risk reduction that we know about. So this study looks at, well, what's the magnitude and frequency of an initial GFR decline and what are the predictors and associations with clinical outcomes? Fair enough. So the ultimate question, do you treat the number or do you treat the patient? All right. What was the study design here? Uh, so again, this was a pre-specified secondary analysis using data from Deliver. And Deliver enrolled adults 40 years of age or older with symptomatic heart failure and an EF of greater than 40% with an elevated BNP and structural heart disease. Patients were randomized one-to-one to DAPA 10 milligrams or matching placebo. Uh, patients were excluded if they had a GFR of less than 25 at enrollment uh, and if their blood pressure was less than 95 systolic. For this secondary analysis, only patients with renal function at baseline as well as at one month uh, were included. Uh, GFR change was categorized as basically no change, a change of 10% or less, or a change of greater than 10%. And the primary outcome, so one was a composite of cardiovascular death or worsening heart failure events, which included hospitalization or like urgent assessment. And then the kidney outcome um, you know, they actually had to change the kidney outcome due to infrequent occurrence of a sustained GFR decline in the trial. So the post hoc kidney composite outcome was one of either first recurrence of 50% of GFR decline or more, um, or development of end-stage kidney disease, which was defined by a GFR of less than 15, or death due to a kidney cause. They also looked at some other things, um, more chronic changes in GFR compared with baseline, and that was sort of baseline to four months GFR change, and then a bunch of safety outcomes as well. Yeah, that's fine. I can buy it, and you know, any post hoc changes you need to do, well, this entire study is just hypothesis generating, so that's fine by me. And I suppose the crux of it really is you have this deliver trial, the double-blind placebo-controlled trial, of adults with an EF of 40% and better who got DAPA or placebo, of course. And I guess the main exposure they're looking at is whether or not they had this large drop in GFR of 10% or more and how that was associated with the cardiovascular composite. And they also looked at this kidney composite. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. 
Okay, so what did the patients look like? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so 5,788 of the original 6,200 and change patients had measured GFRs at baseline and at month one. So that was about 92% of the patient population. The average age was 72, uh, 56% were male and 70% were white. All right. And what were the main results? So during the first month of treatment, 42% of patients did not have any decline in GFR. And of those, 41% were assigned to dapagliflozin and 59% were assigned to placebo. 26% of all patients had a decline of 10% or less in their GFR, of which 51% of those were assigned to dapagliflozin and 49% were assigned to placebo. And then 32% of patients had a decline of greater than 10%, of which most of those patients were on dapagliflozin, 61% compared with 39% on placebo. At a median percent change in GFR from baseline to month one was about minus 6% in those assigned to dapagliflozin compared with minus 1% in those assigned to placebo. And then looking at the impact of initial GFR decline and risk of those kidney outcomes. And again, this was sort of a composite of a 50% or more change in GFR, a GFR of less than 15 or death due to a kidney cause. Reassuringly, there was no difference in risk of kidney outcomes among patients on DAPA who had a greater than 10% uh, versus less than 10% change in GFR. There were a whole bunch of other things that they looked at too, but maybe just to focus on some other kind of more pertinent things. Um, there was no difference in the risk of cardiovascular outcomes among patients on DAPA who had a greater than 10% change in GFR versus those who had a less than 10% change. And they also um, they also showed that there were similar rates of adverse events regardless of GFR change in those on dapagliflozin versus those on placebo. All right, so a lot of results, a lot of percentages. If I have this right, 32% of patients, so one-third of patients, had a decline in their GFR of 10% or more. So what that means to me is the vast majority of patients did not have this drop. And then the obvious question is, does this drop in GFR, does it happen more often with DAPA or placebo? And they observed that, yes, it occurs more with DAPA, 61% compared to 39% with placebo. But to your point... Even though the numbers looked worse for DAPA in that first month, and by numbers I mean creatinine, that didn't influence the patient's risk of the clinical outcome of that kidney stuff. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. And so in this case, kind of to your initial point, uh, treat the patient, not the number. Okay, good, good. That, uh, that pearl continues to be a good one to hold on to. Anyway, what were the limitations of this study? Um, so one of the things I guess was that they did have to change that kidney outcome. And so there was a post hoc change to the definition that they used, but that was just, you know, what had to be done. You tell me, I mean, I know this is more um, for future research considerations, but what about multiple comparisons here? Like they did a lot of statistical analyses on a lot of different tests. And so sure, like you do 20 statistical analyses and one of them is going to be statistically significant, probably. Does that matter or not in these kind of trials? I don't think so, because the whole premise of this is it is a secondary analysis. It's a post hoc analysis. So I think everything we learn from these sort of secondary analyses should either serve to inform future studies or to aid us with our understanding of a little bit of physiology and some practical approaches for how we manage these patients. So because I'm not hanging my hat on any of this, I don't get too fussed uh, about the multiple comparisons. Sure, there could be some spurious findings, 
But this was a null result. So I, I even get less concerned when it's a null result. Okay, that's good to know. And I also really like the descriptive results. Like just that descriptive piece of like, hey, one third of patients are going to have a change in their GFR in a bad way um, in by more than 10%. And the majority of those are on an SGLD2. Like that's just such a nice pearl that I can take with me that, hey, we expect things to get worse in, you know, X percentage of patients. Um, and we have some supportive data that we should continue on with the drug and not get scared off. But anyway, what's a take home point from your standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's really just that. In patients with heart failure with mildly reduced or preserved EF, development of an initial decline in GFR of greater than 10% was more common in patients on dapagliflozin versus placebo. However, this decline was not associated with a higher risk of either cardiovascular or renal outcomes compared with patients who did not develop that GFR decline. And is this practice changing? I mean, I think this is reassuring. Kind of like the ACE inhibitor ARB thing. You know, we always pay attention to how the GFR is going to change but uh, for me, no, like stay the course. Sure, the GFR might change or it might not at all. But even if it gets a bit worse, these are good medications that have, you know, important cardiovascular and renal outcomes in the future. So stay the course is what I would say. I like it a lot. All right, next up, we're going to stay in the realm of cardiovascular um, drugs and cardiovascular outcomes. Um, this study was the SELECT trial uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine, November 11th, 2023, and it was semaglutide and CV outcomes in obesity without diabetes. Yeah, this one was blowing Twitter up. Uh, what was the research question here? Among adults who are obese and have cardiovascular disease, but don't have diabetes, does semaglutide improve cardiovascular outcomes? Fantastic. Why was this important? Semaglutide is truly a wonder drug. It's a wonder drug for adults with diabetes. In that population, we know it reduces cardiovascular events. We also know it's a wonder drug for adults with obesity. It can lead to reductions in weight of 15% and sometimes higher than that. We also know that it's effective for adults with preserved ejection fraction heart failure. But how about cardiovascular outcomes? It's really important to remember there are no drugs, zero drugs, that improve cardiovascular outcomes among adults with obesity. And one-third of Canadians are obese. So this just really sets the stage for why this trial ended up in the New England Journal and why everyone's talking about it. So how do they design this study? It was a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial funded by industry. We can walk through the basics of the study using the PICO framework. So the population, um, adults age 45 and up with pre-existing cardiovascular disease, for example, prior MI or stroke, and they had a BMI of 27 and higher. They excluded adults with type 2 diabetes. They excluded adults who were using GLP-1 analogs in the past 90 days. They also excluded adults with end-stage renal disease or NYHA class 4 heart failure. The intervention, once weekly semaglutide, they started at a dose of 0.24 milligrams once weekly and increased it every four weeks thereafter as tolerated. The comparator was placebo. Uh, the outcome was three-point MACE, so that's a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and the timeline for follow-up was two and a half years. Um, the study was analyzed using intention to treat, and they had 90% power to detect a 17% relative risk reduction. 
I'll mention shortly why that's important. Okay. Uh, so who was enrolled in the trial? So they enrolled over 17,000 patients. Average age was 62 years. 72% were male. 84% were white. The average BMI was 33. The average hemoglobin A1C was 5.8%. Uh, 65% had a prior myocardial infarction. 25% had prior heart failure. 17,000 patients enrolled. These cardiovascular trials are very impressive. Uh, okay, so uh, let's figure it out. Why was Twitter blowing up? Why was this covered by the New York Times? What were the main results? Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is incredible that they could uh, recruit and randomize 17,000 patients. This was done about over three years. Um, but remember, you know, the manufacturers, Nova Nordisk, they have an unlimited supply of money, okay? So, yes, it's impressive, but, you know, hey, if I had an unlimited supply of money, I could try to do this too. Okay, anyway, focus, Mike. All right, so what were the main results? The primary outcome occurred in 6.5% of adults who got semaglutide and 8% who got placebo. So that was a 20% relative risk reduction for those randomized to semaglutide, and it corresponded to a 1.5% absolute risk reduction. If you're like, ooh, that doesn't sound impressive, well, do you prescribe statins? If yes, guess what? Statins have a lower absolute risk reduction, so a 1.5% absolute risk reduction is truly impressive. Um, let's talk about, you know, the bad stuff for these drugs. So the rate of adverse events leading to permanent stopping occurred in 16% of those who got semaglutide versus 8% in placebo. So twice as likely to stop the drug if you got semaglutide. The number one side effect uh, was GI related. Um, they looked at some other adverse events. One thing we think about are like, um, you know, different biliary side effects, and there is certainly a higher risk. Most often it's just the you know, um, presence of stones, um, similar risk of pancreatitis, which is great, because uh, that's the other thing we worry about. And then some secondary endpoints. So if you got semaglutide, on average, you lost 10% of your body weight, you had a lower risk of heart failure, you had a lower risk of all-cause death. And interestingly, but maybe not surprisingly, a 75% reduction in the risk of diabetes. All of those things are incredible. Uh, but like, yeah, this medication is like a preventative therapy for diabetes. I mean, I know that's not why they use it, but like preventing 75% risk reduction for diabetes. My goodness. Uh, maybe there's some limitations to talk about. It can't all just be glowing. You're right. So the obvious one limitation is generalizability you know, how well will this correspond to patients in the real world? Absolutely. That is an important question. But remember, 16% of these patients stop the drug. So that means these results are underestimating the benefits. Because if that 16% continued on this drug, which we now see has clear cardiovascular benefits, you'd expect an even larger relative and absolute risk um, reduction. Of course, cost is a very important consideration and no randomized trial is expected to do a cost-effectiveness analysis, but I'm sure there'll be secondary ones. And the other important question is, will these benefits also apply to adults who do not have established cardiovascular disease um, who are obese? So those are a few of the limitations, but again, this is a double-blind, randomized controlled trial, 17,000 patients. It's hard to really poke holes at it. Um, yes, you can get lazy and say, 
oh, it's drug company funded and that's a limitation. Okay, but like it's a double blind randomized trial. So unless you think they're committing fraud, um, I don't think that is a uh, Achilles heel whatsoever. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, did they speak at all to like the average dose that patients got to you? You know, I've talked about this before of like, you know, trying to mitigate like, you know, ability to take the medication because of GI side effects, which do tend to get better. But like, did they speak to kind of like an average dose that achieved these results? Yeah, the, the way they mainly approximated it so um one by reporting you know how many stopped it they also reported the time on the drug and the vast majority of individuals reached this um sort of max dose so the follow-up was for like 39 months the average duration on treatment was about 35 months which is actually pretty impressive yeah okay great uh so what's the take-home point here the take-home point is that if you have an adult that you're seeing in clinic or maybe in hospital and they're obese and have a history of cardiovascular disease, um, semaglutide will clearly reduce their, uh, their risk of cardiovascular events and it will also likely reduce their risk of developing diabetes. Oh, this is incredible. We Now what we need is like our provincial bodies to give access to this medication and try to co-fund it. Uh, practice affirming for you, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, affirming very much so, as as you're aware, and anyone who listens to the show is aware, uh, I'm a big fan of these drugs, um, but it really just adds fuel to the fire um, to come up with initiatives to make sure the patients who are likely to benefit uh, from these drugs are going to receive these drugs. And my research team has put in a large grant for the fourth time, in case you were counting, um, to try to do some knowledge translation work in this space. But um, time will tell. And you're also right. We definitely need uh, provincial bodies to um, cover these drugs. Right now, I don't know what it's like in Alberta. It'd be great to hear the current situation. But in Ontario, they can be covered if somebody has diabetes, um, but not if they have obesity, which is uh, redonkulous. Yeah, it's kind of similar. And they also have to have like failed bad diabetes drugs. Like they have to have failed being on like a sulfonylurea, which is like, why on earth would you put your patient through that just to get them covered for something that's actually going to help? Oh, that's a nice study. That's a nice study right there. How often are patients being harmed by provincial bodies that are requiring patients to be on a sulfonylurea before they get their uh, semaglutide? I know. Okay. You guys can do that, right? With like uh, some of the Gemini data or something. I don't know. Oh yeah. We, we just mash some buttons and then a study pops out on the other end. <laughs> AI. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's the buzzword I was looking for. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so yes, uh, semaglutide is incredible. Uh, lots of good stuff there. Um, what good stuff cut your eye, John? Yeah, this good stuff, I don't know, I, I feel like it's a weak effort on my part, but it's just an interesting New York Times article about, of all things, Ozempic and the drug company Novo Nordisk. It's incredible. You've kind of spoken to this before, but Denmark's economy grew like, I think it was like 1.9% last year, of which 1.7 of those percentage points were due to Novo Nordisk. Yep, it's pretty impressive. I think I already had that as a good stuff, John. I think you... I oh, think you did just you? Oh, my no. good stuff, but, okay. but I could be wrong. I'm pretty sleep deprived. Um, so my good stuff was uh, also um, on the topic of semaglutide, a really nice origin story 
This was covered by uh, Global News, and it featured um, uh, Dan Drucker. So Dan Drucker, he is one of the uh, researchers who discovered GLP-1 hormone back in the 1980s. So I think he was doing his graduate degree um, and maybe like his thesis work, man, what a thesis project, where he um, identified that GLP-1 is a hormone that resides in the gut and that it was a very powerful stimulator of insulin secretion but only when glucose was elevated. And that's such a beautiful explanation for why these drugs don't cause hypoglycemia, right? So it's a powerful stimulator of insulin secretion, but only when glucose is elevated. And then he and his team thought about, well, how do we turn it into a drug? And it turns out if you take this hormone and you manufacture samples, it dissolves too quickly. I don't exactly know how, but I'll have to ask him. But he was aware of this Gila monster, which we've talked about before, the little lizard. Uh, and, and the Gila monster has um, this molecule in their saliva. So he worked on cloning um, the lizard's DNA, and they actually had to partner with the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum. Do I have that right? Maybe? I don't know. Um, and they had to purchase the lizard. So they also talked to the guy at the ROM who like knew where this could be purchased from, and they'd like fly it into Canada on like a plane or something like that. Like it's very cool. That is a great story. And my goodness, like Nobel Prize worthy at some point in the future. Yeah, I think so. It also turns out that the Gila monster, if you're bitten by it, you'll like die immediately. Um, but if you get its saliva and you turn it into a drug, then you can boost a country's economy by 1.7%. Yeah. <laughs> you lose a bunch of weight and you don't get diabetes. <laughs> yeah, wild. Yeah, but I, I think so. That is a great story. And my goodness, like Nobel Prize worthy at some point in the future. I wondered if maybe he would have won the Nobel Prize this year, but it was um it's also a fascinating origin story. It's 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 related to the discovery of mRNA vaccines for for COVID. So um that was this year's winner, but I wonder if in the next couple of years he will have won the Nobel Prize, which is pretty pretty incredible. All from a thesis project when he was a grad student. Oh man, not bad, eh? Like I mean, I I don't love doing my own research, but hey, if you're ever motivated to do some research, like look at what can happen with the stuff you do in grad school. Jeez. Yes. Now the other 99.99999% of grad studies sadly <laughs> go nowhere, but anyway, it, it so so check out the link. It's really cool and uh Dan is just um an incredible colleague and um you know, the way he talks about it is that like He's like, I won, I won the lottery, right? Like this is like a one in a million type of thing that you get to be part of something like this. So anyway, check it out. That's it for this week. Uh, take care in Calgary, John. Talk to you later, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of the Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, Editor-in-Chief at Healthy Debate for all the support.